Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Okasanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. I'm delighted to introduce my guest today. She's the Chief Client Officer of the National Advice Firm, Succession, and the newly elected President of the Personal Finance Society. Tell us a little bit about your career, about your journey to, to the top of the profession. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've had um, an interesting journey, shall we say, um, and certainly 20 years ago, um, when I was starting out, I never really thought I would end up doing what I'm doing. Um, I think, you know, I left school not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, I did my degree at um, Leeds University in medical biochemistry, so a long way away from what I do today. Um, and at the time, um, the um, national firm uh, at the time, Interalliance, some people may remember that company, um, was setting up an office in Nottingham um, and I saw basically an article in the local paper um, and saw that they were setting up and I thought that sounds quite interesting. Um, working with finance, I'd always been interested in numbers, um, needed a job so I gave them a call um, and I got a job as an administrator. Um, what I saw from kind of the profession as an IFA, I thought, I really like this and I really want to sort of help people with their money. So I essentially spent sort of the first 12 months at Interalliance getting some qualifications and then uh, opportunity arise at Scottec, now obviously part of Aegon, um, as one of their um, sort of broker con consultants. Um, and this was around the time of sort of stakeholder pensions coming in and kind of changes there. So it was a really exciting time, but I always knew that I wanted to be back on the other side of the fence, you know, in that sort of financial advice space, and being able to work with clients to sort of understand their financial picture, help them build financial resilience and ultimately live the life that they want to live. And I think one of the biggest um, changes for me and exciting bits of my career that really helped me was um, when my husband got the opportunity to go and work in the Middle East in Dubai. Um, at the height of the credit crisis, timing right. wasn't brilliant, um, but it gave me the opportunity to set up my own company that I thought, you know, I spent a couple of years thinking I really want to do this. So it gave me that opportunity and I set up the wealth consultancy um, not really fully aware of kind of what the um, market in the Middle East was like and how I would be able to find a way, shall we say, to trade, particularly given, as I say, it was the height of the credit crisis. Um, but I knew that if clients sort of wanted to continue to work with me, then it was going to be viable in the UK from day one. And that's when I came together with Killick. Um, and um, that, you know, I had seven and a half wonderful years at Killick, um, four of which were essentially operating in the Middle East and also leading um, the UK financial planning team as well. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the experience that I've had and then from Killick, I went to Mazars, um, where I was a partner at Mazars. Um, 
so partner of the main Mazars firm, obviously focused on financial planning. And again, a different kind of business model and a, bis a different business dynamic, um, you know, really operating in that professional services space with different clients. So throughout my career, I've had a lot of variety. You know, I've, wor I've worked kind of for a provider. I've worked in an employee benefits business. I've run my own business. Um, I've worked in an investment management business um, and professional services. Um, and now um, Chief Client Officer of Succession Wealth. So it's been very varied, um, which I guess is kind of keeps the interest going as well. I'm fascinated about, uh, you know, this, this move to Dubai. What, what was that like? Were you a regulated, UK regulated business trading in Dubai or did you have to be regulated in Dubai, um, you know, to give financial advice over there? Yeah, so I was, I, I, the wealth consultancy in the UK was regulated through the FCA. And then at that time, the, the Middle East or the offshore financial services um, market was in a very different space to the UK um, and probably about 10 years behind. So you had about three different competing entities where you could almost try and get a license to operate. And really, I needed um, to, you know, to offer the true financial planning fee-based service. I needed to be regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority. And at that time, Dubai was still, and they still do, I mean, the, the fees for those licenses were astronomical. And you had to pay, sort of, basically, I needed two licenses, each license costing $50,000 a license. Um, and non-refundable if you didn't get the license. <laughs> so you had to pay it. Um, and, you know, so basically it was too much of a commitment. Um, and too much of a risk, which is where I kind of approached Killick um, and sort of suggested that there was a way in which we could come together because they had the licenses and obviously I through see. financial planning um, and using their investment management service, then we could really give a, 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 a great service to the clients out there, which was different to what others were doing because there's no kind of commission disclosure or anything, as I say, kind of 10 years behind the UK. And so what we were offering really was kind of um, best of breed for out there. Um, it was, you know, run of the mill, shall we say, or fairly standard as far as the UK market was concerned. But it, do, it did kind of really create an opportunity for, for me and for Killick um, in the way in which we came together. So let, let's talk about today, uh, Chief Client Officer at Succession. Tell us about Succession as, as a business today. Give us an insight to, to the business and, and your role within it. Yeah, so Succession, you know, it's grown really rapidly in the last five years or so. Um, acting really kind of, shall we say, as a consolidator um, and acquiring a number of businesses, around 50 businesses over the last five years. So it's grown substantially. Um, we now have around 170-ish, 170, 180 um, financial planners. Um, we have offices from sort of Stornoway all the way down to Truro. Um, so we really truly are a national business. Um, but the focus is very much about being a national business and the benefits of kind of 
scale, shall we say, in size, mm. but making sure that we're delivering a local service and, you know, not losing sight of the importance of kind of that personal and local service. And as far as my role is concerned, um, Chief Client Officer, naturally, um, you would, as you would expect, um, my role is really much focused around kind of the client experience um, and everything to do with the client. So thinking about the proposition and and kind of how we deliver our proposition through kind of the client journey and making sure that we've got a really strong and great client experience through that client journey and also um i i chair the investment committee um and i think one of the sort of unique strengths should we say of succession is that from you know when it was very a very first established um we set up what's called the investment matrix so working with 13 or so really you know um, strong investment partners from a broad range of investment styles from active to passive um, and a really strong governance framework around the investment matrix which i think creates one of the unique aspects of what we can deliver to our clients so i chair that investment committee too um, and yeah it's it's fun. Um, you know, I'm so passionate about kind of clients and what we do as a profession um, and how we can really help individuals with their finances. So I'm, I'm loving the role um, and there's plenty for me to get my teeth into, particularly when we kind of think about the proposition and, you know, what a client really wants um, from their financial advisor and their financial planner. So, yeah. A little bit then what clients really want what the hell do they want from their <laughs> I, I think you know i think the biggest thing and you know very much the vision for succession wealth is to be the trusted advisor of choice and i think the most important thing you know money is such a personal thing for individuals um, so they need to have great trust in their financial advisor around kind of having those open and honest dialogues around their finances but i think ultimately it's about having making clients have confidence in their financial future and you know with the pandemic and the last 12 months or so there's a lot of focus on sort of people's health people's mental well-being but equally important is people's financial well-being and that really is a focus for us is how we can make sure that clients have that confidence in their financial well-being you know, the last 12 months have really demonstrated to individuals that you need financial resilience in whatever shape or form. Um, and so I think really looking, you know, in general, clients, individuals of the UK society look to financial advisors to give them that confidence, to give them, should we say, the plan um, and really have that trust that they'll be okay. The succession was kind of one of the um, you know early pioneers of the integrated advice model in the post um, you know post RDR world you know with um, ownership of a platform um, you know the, the control over the investment bit and then the advice and I felt that as an industry we spent huge amount of time at the time debating that model of business and you know conflict and all that stuff but but I guess that. Uh, today, Succession's proven that model, and there are now several players in the market 
um, you know, coming in to build a, a national integrated wealth management business? Succession is very much, we have that integrated approach um, for our clients through the use of the succession platform and the use of the some of our investment solutions. But also key for us and one of our, I suppose, real differentiators is that we've, we've maintained our independence as well. So whilst we have that succession platform, we also work with three or four key other, um, should we say, platform providers. Um, and through the use of the investment matrix as well, we can really demonstrate how we've researched the whole of the market and um, sort of filtered, shall we say, the best of breed investment solutions to meet our clients' needs. And that's under constant review. So we review on an annual basis kind of um, our, our approach to the platform market too. So I think to a certain extent, that is a true kind of uniqueness of succession is how we've managed to balance making sure that we kind of deliver the best to our clients, but also that important aspect of independence. We try to be really pragmatic. Clients don't fit neatly into boxes. Um, mm. Everyone is unique. Everyone has different set of requirements. And we try to really recognize that as to how we work with our clients. Let's talk about, you know, how... Uh, if you can give us a glimpse into how you're approaching technology at, at succession, what's your view on how, how, how do you see that impact the role of the advisor and, and the cost of advice? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, again, it's another one that we kind of debate over and over and over again, shall we say, in the profession. And I think, you know, this last year has taught a lot of businesses a lot around technology, yeah. shall we say, and indeed society a lot around technology. We've got, you know, um, grandparents now, even my own parents using FaceTime to babysit my children for me type thing. So, you know, we've got people... Well, nice, nice use of FaceTime. <laughs> exactly. Um, but we've got, we've got so much more use of technology. You know, society has adapted really quite well to the use of technology over the last 12 months and you know you say you know last year was talked about that we had sort of five years worth of change in five months and everything and so i think it's really important that you know we we as a profession we as a business view technology as an enabler rather yeah. than fear it um, I think, you know, go back five years or so when we started to see kind of more robo advisors coming into the market, you know, scalable capital, nutmeg and, and these businesses, there were a lot of advisors really fearing them and thinking what impact is that going to have on our business and our business model. And I think ultimately um, robo advisors to a certain extent have helped our profession because they've raised awareness of kind of what we do and also kind of how we as individuals in society engage with technology has really changed you know far more people are using internet banking you know we've seen kind of should we say the death of the banks on the high street which you know again i find quite sad because there's a lot of people that still want or need to go into a bank but most people are using internet banking and therefore are used to seeing their finances online and having access at a point at which they want to have access and i think that's the key and i think it's about 
getting that right balance between kind of having a client experience, a client journey that's technology driven, but there's also that human interaction because you know, there's no doubt that technology can help kind of from an efficiency perspective. So I think it's really important that kind of as a profession and succession as a business, we're absolutely embracing technology. I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges and kind of one of the frustrations for us across the profession is kind of the different approach to technology that you see across different providers, you know, we, you know, and how kind of you can, we're still struggling these days, aren't we? APIs have got better, but we're still struggling with clients having that kind of aggregated view, real-time yeah. view of, of their wealth, mm. unless it's kind of in, in all in one place. Open banking's helping, um, but you know, we, we need to help clients. A computer cannot replace the right. rich conversation that a financial planner can have with a client around mm. kind of their goals, their aspirations and everything. But what it can do is create an environment that the client has access to the information so that when they're talking to their financial planner, they're having that more meaningful conversation around their finances rather than, for example, the financial planner needing to update the fact find. You know, that's where technology really helps us. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. I think you touched on a, on a subject that is very close to my heart. Uh, you know, when I think about uh, you know the stuff that we're building that we're doing at a timeline. So you know, o open APIs, for instance, uh, we're still very you know the industry as a whole still a long long way away in terms of you know we want to for instance pull data from you know I don't know platforms. Um, it's 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 a massive headache. We're we're seeing some movement there, but um, it's still very much um, you know a massive headache. And then you talked about open banking, the 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 ability to use that in in fact finding and client reporting, and again in in updating the plan. Um, you know, open banking is is fine, but open finance, the investment side of it is still very much a lot of idle. The, the thing though that, that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is that there, there is a perception generally in the fintech world that, and generally in the technology world, that the, the pandemic has basically accelerated the use of technology, you know, by about, I don't know, by, by about three, maybe five years, you know. So what would I remember you and I talking before the pandemic at the Science of Retirement Conference, and you were talking about this idea of using technology, you know, for the client of the future, and, you know, maybe less so for the client of today. But I, I think to an extent, technology, sorry, the pandemic just basically obliterated that dichotomy in the sense that everybody you know, the, the older population, the younger ones, everybody needs to, you know, started to, was forced to use technology. And I don't think we're going back. I, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to hear your view. Do you think we're going to go back to the world of paper-driven client reporting and fact-finding? And if not, what do technology providers need to start doing today to meet that demand that we're seeing from clients? 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I fully kind of agree with what you're saying around, you know, I, going back to the science of retirement conferences, we're talking about kind of clients, you know, still very much got clients of today and clients yes. of the future, but their kind of requirements from a tech perspective has, you know, almost like the clients of today have caught up with the clients of the future because right, of the right. pandemic. And I think, you know, I feel very strongly and very passionately around the fact that, you know, we can't, we cannot go back to how we were um, mm. because we, the world has moved at a really fast pace and actually, you know, no one really wants to receive a load of paper anymore. We're all more aware of kind of the impact of using paper as well on kind of yes. the environment and how many trees you need to cut down for, you know, a provider statement or illustrate annual illustration. We, we don't want to go there. We need to continue to use technology and improve. And I think that's one of the key things kind of, and we've always had this focus at Succession is how we've pivoted and how we've, you know, sort of engaged with technology more over the last 10 months is about making sure that we're making change for the long term, not kind of the yeah. short term, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And I think as a profession and other businesses, that really needs to be the focus. Yes, we don't want every client meeting to be like this over Zoom or kind right. of Teams or whatever. We do want to go back to that kind of interaction from that perspective. But the use of kind of technology to surface information rather than wait for sort of kind of an annual statement to appear in the post, um, we, we can't be doing that. And I think the key for me is really the providers, the platforms, the investment houses and staff need to get, we all need to get better as to how we're showing the information to our clients, that it's in a kind of clear and simple sort of jargon free um, language so that when a client logs on to their portal to see their personal finances, they understand it. It's easy to understand. I couldn't agree anymore. So you were recently elected uh, the, the president of the Personal Finance Society. Congratulations. Uh, I know you've been on the board for many years now. I don't know, since 2015, maybe, uh, maybe longer. Uh, congratulations. This happened right in the middle of the pandemic though and you go the next i don't know clock is ticking 12 months um what are your priorities as the as the president in some ways i kind of quite disappointed that sort of my year as president is sort of in a pandemic as it were and yeah. therefore you know i can't get out as much as i'd like to um around kind of the regions and at sort of live events to meet with the members and kind of do more sort of in person with the members yeah. um but my theme for the year is um building a um you know a strong and sustainable future for the profession so i can do that remotely um and i think really when we when we talk about kind of and you know it, the theme i suppose is very apt um, given the situation that we find ourselves in as, you know, as society and as a profession. And I think there's three main aspects that I'm really trying to talk more about and raise awareness and sort of, should we say, drive, um, I suppose, more sharing of knowledge across the profession. And so it's about kind of how do we encourage that next gen 
um, planner, we've, we've, we've come a long way, but we've still got an awful lot of work to do, I think, as a profession for people to be making that, that choice. I want to be a financial planner, like historically people have wanted to be an accountant or a doctor or whatever. Um, so kind of how we can maybe use the Aspire apprenticeship program, particularly, you know, given the circumstances that, you know, how do people get a foot into the profession and apprenticeships is a great way and particularly the impact that the pandemics had on school leavers and kind of those um you know sort of heading off to university and their university experience hasn't been what they were hoping for from october you know the apprenticeship program route can be a really strong way into the profession so talking more about that but also kind of when you think about us as a profession we're going through this this kind of change really, where sort of the first generate, what I call the first generation of planners um, are, are looking to ultimately retire. And, you know, we've talked about that in the profession for some time. And then we've got the next gen planners kind of coming through and sort of building their client bases. So how, how as a profession can we get better in that transition and create that really strong kind of client relationship trust as part of that transition because you know for the first gen planners they've maybe worked with their clients for 20 years we talked about trust yeah. earlier and it's all about trust so how do you build that trust that the client has in the next gen and the confidence for the first gen planners to kind of retire and do what they want to do so i think that's a really important aspect and i think as as businesses, we can learn more from each other as to kind of how you do that and how you do that client transition, because that's very much a focus at succession as well, is how do we make sure that we have that best client experience as we transition the relationship? And then I suppose the third strand is very much what we've just been talking about for the last 10, 15 minutes, the business model. What are we, you know, how do you have and make sure that you've got a sustainable business model how how are we using technology as part of that to make us stronger but also how are we kind of looking at our pricing and kind of making sure that we're delivering value to clients but actually you know we're still viable profitable businesses because of the challenges around kind of cost and everything so i think you know it's a really interesting time for society but for our profession because now more than ever people need financial help and financial advice and everything so it's a real opportunity for us as a profession but we need to be focused on how we kind of make sure that it's sustainable and we continue to engage society more in kind of the the benefits of financial advice the benefits of kind of having your plan and knowing what your plan is to have that confidence in your financial well-being yeah, thank you very much sarah for your honesty for your wisdom um you know for 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 sharing um you know your your thoughts with us on the on the program um as we start to wrap up i want to i want to just you know uh, pick up a, a few things uh the, the, these are more on the personal side, if, if I may. And one, one of the things I've been wondering is, what is it like for you um, rising to the top of the profession in what is, let's face it, um, you know, a white male dominated industry? And what advice do you have on how we raise 
more leaders, more executives that, that look like you? I'm not sure anyone wants to look like me, but... <laughs> I mean, look more like you. I think certainly in my time, kind of in the just under 20 years that I've been in the profession, we have seen it evolve. Not as quick as I would like to see it evolve. And I think some of this comes back to what we were just talking about of, you know, making financial planning, making kind of chartered financial planner a really attractive and people being aware that actually that's the career that they want. But we are starting to see more kind of female leaders and I've never wanted it to be seen as, oh, we need a female, let's, let's get Sarah type thing and, and tick a box. Um, but no, absolutely not. The, the trouble is that the, the, the structure of, of the workplace and the profession makes it harder so yeah. that women have to work harder. And then if you, if you think about the society, childbirth, all of those things. So I, I have never seen it that way. I've never seen it as being, oh, you know, let's, let's make it easier for a female, uh, you know, let, let's make it, let's just find a female to fill a role. I've, I've, yeah. I've thought of it more as how do we level the playing field such that everybody um, has... Um, an equal um, opportunity. Yeah, no, and I think it's a really interesting point because I absolutely agree with what you're saying, but I do think there has, there is still, shall we say, that stigma in society that mm. actually people see it as they need to have a female to tick a box, and absolutely it shouldn't be about that. It's actually about making sure, you know, and how, as you say, we level that playing field because you know, we, as society over the last 20, 30 years or kind of in our generation, shall we say, we've moved much more to um, kind of both parents working. So there's that just general recognition in society that there's a levelling and playing field. So it's also about making sure kind of we are flexible as kind of um, employers to recognize that it's not ne necessarily just females that need kind of that work-life balance but it's also the dads you're a dad yeah, you know right. it's that it's that balance and by having that overall recognition of kind of the balance of should we say parenthood and working career aspirations I think ultimately that's how we help more females in the profession as well um, and, and, and then try and level up that playing field good stuff good stuff so the other question for you is so how are you how, how do you plan your own um re retirement shall we say how do you invest your own retirement money so um i i kind of yeah um <laughs> leave <laughs> i leave it to the expert shall we say um and, right. and that's me no um so I, I, my main retirement um, fund is um, in a SIP with Killick. Um, so I have every confidence in kind of their investment expertise and what they're doing. Um, and then I have um, my um, group pension um, through succession and, um, and basically look after that myself and focus on kind of the investment solutions. I think the key thing for me is given that I have no plans um, to touch my retirement fund over the next um, before 20 years time, it's, it's, it's my higher risk money, shall we say. I'm quite cautious in day-to-day -day life, um, but I don't pay too much attention to kind of that because A, kind of, 
trust I trust the team at Killick um, to be sort of on on it, shall we say, from an investment market perspective. But I do check in um, from time to time to make sure that you know the overall financial plan or life plan is broadly on track that I will be able to sort of live the life that I want to live in retirement. Brilliant. And the final question, what's the biggest financial mistake you've ever made? Hmm. Um, I don't think I've necessarily made any financial mistakes per se, um, you know, but what I would say is what's the biggest area that I've wasted money um yeah. and therefore you could arguably say is kind of a financial mistake is um over the years um i definitely lost money and on cars i <laughs> <laughs> i quite i quite enjoy kind of cars and i've been through a few over my time it as in been through them because i've i've got bored of what i've got and thought oh i like that new yeah. shiny thing and so what, what do you drive right now what do you drive well not like not like you're driving any what do you what what do you have in the garage gar well I, I was gonna say that you know over the years i i definitely lost money on cars but that all got well that all changed um ah. I, I mean day to day i drive a 10 year old mini but the reason I drive a 10 year old mini because about 18 months ago, I bought the car that I've always, always wanted, which is a 1974 Californian convertible Beetle that sits in wow. the garage. And that is an investment. So I finally, hopefully in years to come, will make up for kind of um, the money I've lost on cars <laughs> over the years. This is fascinating. You bought the, your dream car and you parked it in the garage and then you're driving it. It's in your incredible, yeah. incredible stuff. Sarah Lord, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And I hope that when all of this is over, we can sit down for, for a drink. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Abraham. Thank you. Now a word from our sponsor. Kate Birchberry is the Enterprise Business Development Manager at Timeline. Kate, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Timeline. Thanks, Abraham. Yeah, so I work alongside the financial planning industry to help them build compelling, um, innovative and dynamic pre and post retirement planning solution. And I guess simply put, my mission is to get all of us, uh, be it consumers, financial advisors, pension providers, workplace journeys to consumers, thinking differently about the way that we plan for and maximize um, a client's savings in retirement and fundamentally to ensure that the money outlives the people. Brilliant, brilliant stuff, Kate. Thank you very much. What problem is Timeline really solving? Great question. Thanks, Abraham. I think in truth, um, Timeline helps with a number of problems. But the first thing I want to highlight is how deaccumulation is different. So I think it helps identify the different strategies and solutions that need to be applied when somebody reaches a point in their retirement journey when they need to consider, actually, how do I access my money? What's the best way of investing as I go into my deaccumulation journey? How do I ensure that if I'm used to receiving a certain paycheck, for example, how could one replicate that in their retirement journey to ensure that the lifestyle that they've been accustomed to continues for them in there? They've worked hard. They've built that 
that part through the accumulation journey. They've listened and heeded to advice given to them. So I think for me, the problem is around understanding. It's about making sure that people recognize the different strategies and solutions that need to be applied when they reach the accumulation part of their retirement journey. And that's it for this edition of Retirementals. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.